0: So if you have your Bibles, will not you please open up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be zoning in on, thank you so much, zoning in on <laughs> verse 7. Isn't it good to worship Jesus? Isn't it good to be here together in His presence? I tell you, it is better than anything. Oh, and I am trusting the Lord tonight that He's going to continue to speak to us and minister to us and love us. You know, what Dane said, it's so true. You know, this call to love up, to love out, to love in. It's just a response to the love you received. Do you know when you see how much Jesus loves you, it's so easy to give it. Because when you are so secure in Christ and you're fellowshipping with Jesus, He warms your heart to such a degree that what we talk about really tonight is an overflow of what He's doing in your life. And that's why when we talk about loving up, we're talking about you've got to guard that love for Jesus in your life. When we talk about first love, he's the one that you come to. And in your life, there is one person you have to stay close to. How many of you have best friends? She's called my wife. Do you know, she says to me when I leave for church tonight, do you really have to preach again? I just want to spend time with my husband. Because there is such a connection. I am important to her. She wants to be close to me. Let me tell you, Jesus is the same. He is the person in your life whom you have to guard your love for more than anybody else. So, when we talk about being a Christian tonight, remember all that we are talking about is not some sort of complicated formula. We're talking about a person whose heart pants for Jesus. They call the disciple somebody who follows Jesus with every single part of their life. That is what a Christian is. And tonight, loving up is simply, we are saying nothing new. It's in Scripture. It's saying you are making this love for the one who loves you the most important thing in your life. And this thing of loving in is an overflow of the one you love. Because you love him, you love what he loves. Let me tell you, he loves you. I'm so aware tonight that these people here in front of me our brothers and sisters that Christ died for, and so when you start to tap into the heart of God and the love of Jesus, He starts pointing you to the things that He loves. My love, my wife loves chocolates. She loves it. If I know, please, I know what she likes because I love her, and I want to take her things. I want to do things that make her pleased. And let me tell you, the highest form. Of loving Jesus. Is this thing called loving art. Where you start to have the eyes of Christ. That he has here. When there's the person sitting on the outskirts. Whom nobody's noticing. But you do. And they are important to you. Because you know they are important to Jesus. It is the sign. That Christ. Is starting to change you. Into him. Let me tell you. Love is the most unselfish thing in this world. We can only love when we die. It's what I'm going to talk about tonight, to ourselves. It is elevating Christ and other people to the point where there are more of a concern than yourself. If that is you, and there's some of you here tonight, I just want to commend you. Loving out in this church is a sign That Christ has really formed us. And that this Sermon on the Mount has had its work in us. And can I just say, maybe I I, I shared tonight partly because God was speaking to me when I, I stood up and said, Do we really believe, do we really believe that if God is for us, who can be against us? Why are we concerned about the way we love? It's because if we don't seek to please Jesus, we're done for. Can I be honest with you? I have done church my whole life. And I have realized something in this last year more than anything. That what matters, what matters is whether we are concerned if God is for us. If he is pleased with what is taking place here. Not only in us individually, but as us as a church. Because if God is for us, if God is pleased with us, watch this space. Watch it. Let me tell you, he will prove his word to you and me. If God is for us, my friend, who can be against us? And so that's why we take this thing seriously of loving up, loving in, loving out, because we want the favor of God on what we do. We want him to say when he looks down on his son and he sees Sterling, he says, Sterling, well done. Well done. You're in line for blessing. Let's read tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds. Ah, this is Jesus. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples, there's the word, came to him. I just want to remind you, the qualification tonight is not a perfect life. It's if you want more of Jesus in your life, this is for you. If you want to follow him more, it doesn't matter how broken you are, no matter how battered you are, no matter how far you feel from him. If you want Christ, even if it's just a small amount, ah... This is for you. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here it is tonight. Blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I want to remind you because it is so important about explaining each beatitude. You know what beatitude means? It means supreme blessedness. And these beatitudes, they are a description of what a person who makes Christ their first love is. And so they are not application points. They are fruits of when you put Christ as the most important person in your life and pleasing Him, this is what you should start to see. And they are the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. None of these things happen by nature. They're not a temperament. Your genes are of no help in being like this. There is by the work of the Spirit. You'll hear me use the word anointing. Anointing simply means the empowering work of the Spirit. So that if you see these things in your life, oh man, this is what I long for. If you see the things mentioned in your life here that we've just read, you are blessed. You are to be congratulated because, why? You are moving forward in the things of God. You are happy. You are lucky because God is starting to shape and change you. He's answering your prayer to become more like him and to make him your first love. And they have a definite structure. We said unless you have one operating in your life, you can't move to the next. And when you move to the next, the one before never stops operating. It's the most amazing thing. The more I delve into this text and the more I look at my own life, I see how God keeps bringing me back to the first one and starts the whole process again so that the one that I'm trying to work on gets better. And so I want to prove to you tonight that this flow of how God works in these Beatitudes, it's crucial in understanding how we reach the fullness of what God is talking about here. Last week, we spoke about having a godly appetite, right? And we said some people have more of an appetite than others. And we said, and tonight, I want to show you how last week we summited. There's a shift that's happening in Jesus' teaching, where he's starting to move us from a position where we've had to climb towards. And now when we're on the peak, how we start moving forward rapidly as we go down towards the things that he wants to see in our lives. So, we started off with blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is when God shows you what you and I are really like before Him. And in actual fact, we're not so impressive. <gasps> no, you're not. I'm not. We're actually desperately poor. And so, it is so helpful. It has to start there. If you want to become a Christian, you have to first see that there is nothing in your life that impresses God. Why is that important? Because we like to bargain with Him. Not so? I will do this if you will do that. I will present this because I think you'll be impressed by that. You have to leave that. God has to show you by His Spirit that you are desperately poor before God. There is nothing in your hand that you can bargain with and that you are totally dependent on Him. That never changes. And when that starts to happen in your life, the test of where that actually has is if you start to mourn. Mourning is this. It's when God says, this is what you really like, and you say, That's me. You put your hand to your mouth and you mourn. What does that mean? It's not a bereavement. It's not some physical mourning or loss of a person. Mourning spiritually is when you start to see what you are really like and you start to die to it. Can I tell you, mourning is attending your own funeral. You start to see that this old self was not impressive. It's not something that you want to live for or prop up or preserve. In actual fact, you've got to let it go in order to move forward in the things of God. You mourn. What is the test of mourning? It's it starts to produce something in your life. Because you start to see that yourself is not so impressive, you start to be less concerned about pleasing it, propping it up, preserving it, and your concern starts to be for the glory of God, not yourself. Do you know what meekness is? Meekness is the lack of preoccupation with yourself. Why? because you've mourned. You realize yourself is not so impressive. Yourself doesn't need to be preserved. In fact, you've got to die to it. When that happens in your life, my friend, you are entering into the greatest, in my opinion, the rarest beatitude of all, is meekness. Meekness is the absence of defensiveness and aggression. So when I come to, oh, when Niteska comes to me, it says, Matt, you missed it on Sunday night, which does actually happen, by the way, I don't implode and go, oh, I'm such a failure. Or I don't kick back and go, excuse me, can I tell you about how you led worship the other night? It was your fault. You gave me such a poor entry into my sermon. The worship was a complete mess. What do I do? I'm willing to hear whatever she brings because I recognize there's nothing to defend in me. Because I realize I've dropped my defenses with God. He showed me what I'm like. Can I be it's so helpful for you to realize you're not as wonderful as what you think you are? When you start to realize that there's actually nothing to defend in you, my friend, you've hit the big league. Because you're dying to yourself. The person brings criticism. Brings correction, you're open, you're approachable. And what that starts to produce is lack of preoccupation with self. That's what meekness is. You start to be preoccupied with what really happens. You start to be preoccupied with God. You start going, God, how can I live for you, not myself? That's a meek person. How can I start to live loving others, not myself? That's a meek person. And that creates this appetite we looked at last week of hungering and thirsting to please God. Can I say tonight, guys, if that's your heart before God, you are blessed. If your appetite, your hunger, your preoccupation is to please him, you're on track. It is the test of meekness. Ah, but tonight, can I say to you, the test of whether you are really willing to be righteous, to be right with God in every area of your life. Is the moment you called to show mercy. God tests every single one of these beatitudes in your life. Not that He doesn't know where we are, because He wants us to understand where we are. It's so helpful to know, actually, like I shared, maybe I didn't share it with you, I shared it at the 8 o'clock last week, that God had to show me that I wasn't so serious about really being righteous before God. So that I could adjust. And can I say the greatest test of whether you're willing to please God is the moment somebody hurts you. And you have to show mercy. Do you ever wonder why Jesus' last trial was having to show mercy? It's because it's the most difficult Totally forgiving somebody is way off our natural chart. What were the last words that Jesus prayed? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Fifty days later, the Father took Christ seriously and poured out the Spirit at Pentecost on the very people that crucified him. God let them off the hook. Our letting someone off the hook is the most difficult test. Have you ever asked yourself, youth, why there was a Judas in Jesus' life? Young adults, parents, have you ever asked why there had to be a Judas? Do you know that Jesus prayed the whole night before he picked his disciples? They weren't, oh, well, you look good looking, you're a good speaker, come along and be part of my posse. God the Father told Jesus... You pick him. It was that Christ would have to learn how to show mercy to one of his closest friends. That even at the last supper, Jesus is telling Judas without revealing it to anybody else that he knows what he's going to do. And even when he gives the bread to Judas, he's saying, you can come back, my boy. I'm still for you. You can recover. Don't do this thing. He lets Judas Be able to come back. He's showing mercy to Judas every single step of the way. My friend, if this is you tonight and you are stuck in the space of being angry and revengeful and vindictive and bitter because of what someone has done for you, the test is for you tonight. How seriously do you want to be right with God? It will be determined by how much you're willing to show mercy. And can I say tonight, praise God. He's so kind. This is beatitude number five. (laughs) Praise God. It's not number one because you can't do it. (laughs) God is so merciful. He says, guys, I'm going to call this out of you, but I'm going to prepare you for it. And so if you're struggling tonight with this intense anger, let me tell you, it is the human nature to feel this need for vindication. I said to you tonight, God is willing to work with you if you're willing to please him. And the way he does it is this, and it is a profound point. And, And you might be asking yourself, because I've been asking myself, you guys leave here every week, and I'm worried you're asking, well, what does this guy really want me to do? I don't have my seven points of application, right? There's a reason for that. And can I say to you tonight, it plays out like this. God is more important with helping you see who you are before he tells you to do anything. It's proven in the Beatitudes. Isn't it amazing? It takes Christ 18 verses before he tells you to do anything. What does he start with? He tells you who you are. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are mourning, who are hungry and thirsty, who are merciful. He's telling you. Who you are. And tonight, can I say to you what will be helpful? Is before you want to ask, what do I need to do for God? I ask you tonight, have you seen who you really are before Him? And what He has done for you? Because that's the kicker. That's the game changer. I'll prove it to you tonight. The way you be merciful is you have to start at Beatitude 1. You have to become poor in spirit. In other words, God has to show you what you really like. And that leads to mourning, which means you receive it. You embrace it. You say, that is me. And what does mourning do? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It drives you to the mercy of God. Because you realize you can't fix anything in your life without it. Is that you tonight? Do you realize your relationship with God is based entirely on his mercy? Because if it's not, I'll tell you how it plays out. It's like a bank account. You feel you have to deposit some funds in, and if you deposit well, then you can make your withdrawal from God. And the way it often plays out is we feel we haven't deposited enough, so we feel we can't come to God because we feel, well, we haven't done enough for him. Was that you tonight? So guilty. Guilty. Because you feel your bank account so empty. Do you know how you relate to God? Is He fills that bank account with unlimited mercy? Do you know why it says in Lamentations three, the mercies of God are new every? Morning, because you live off it every single day of your life. God has to pour out new mercy. Yesterday's mercy is not enough to keep you. Today, He has to pour out mercy so that you can enjoy a relationship with Jesus. That is what a Christian is. A recipient of mercy. It is this awareness of the scandalous goodness of God. That every living breath, every ounce of cotton clothing you've got on your shoulders, every house that you own, every roof over your head, everything that is there for life and godliness, it is coming from a merciful God, pouring it out. Not a little trickle, a little drip, drip, drip—it It is a fountain of mercy in your life. If that is not your experience or view of yourself and God, you still need to be saved. Because a Christian is somebody who recognizes they've received mercy. And that makes you humble. And that does something in you. Can I say tonight, you know how God motivates you? Is by showing you who you are, why? Because you see how good God has been, that you are such a recipient of mercy. Or you say, God, I love you. God, I'm so thankful to you. God, I'm so in awe of you. I want to please you because of what you've done for me. Hunger and thirst for righteousness flows from receiving comfort from God in his mercy. So that when this person in front of you that's hurt you and you're angry with. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe you're angry with your dad, he left your mom. Maybe your best friend stabbed you in the back or stole your girlfriend. Maybe your business partner turned his back on you and when you served and you sweated and you poured finance into that business and he ran off with the money, Maybe your wife committed adultery. Maybe there is something tonight that is on your mind and God is putting his finger on and saying, there is unresolved bitterness and anger. You have to show mercy to this person. My friend, the person who understands who they are in Christ and how much mercy they've received, when that moment comes, they say, how can I withhold mercy from them when I've received so much? Any other attitude is pride. Do you know why? because you have an inflated view of yourself and you think, I'm actually not that bad. I don't really live off the mercy of God. But a person who understands who they are in Christ and what he has done, when the moment comes to show mercy, they say, how can I withhold what I've received so much of? With me? Who you are and understanding what God has done for you is more important than what you do. And this is what a Christian is. A Christian is living from this place of understanding all the time their debt of love to God. Why? Because of his mercy. Christianity is not some superficial sayings. It's not some rituals that we do. It is being gripped in the core of who you are by the mercy of God, and you are never the same again. And what exactly do I mean by mercy? I've said before, mercy can be described as not giving someone something that they deserve. It is withholding judgment or not throwing the book at them or letting them off the hook. Verse grace, which is actively giving something that they don't deserve, which we explain as a gift. I would say I've I've preached mercy as release and grace as a gift. And it's right, but there is much more to mercy tonight that we need to see. Mercy is something that you feel, and then it shapes something that you do. It has two parts, what you feel and what you do. And an example of mercy is the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. There's this Jewish guy squirming in his blood. He's been beaten up, left for dead. And the priest walks past, and the Levite walks past. The Samaritan, this is mercy. Doesn't walk past, just go, ach shame, fui toch, man. so And walk on, ach shame. That's what I thought mercy was. Ach shame, oh, that's so compassionate, so pity. Mercy happens when that compassion and pity drives you to do something, to act. And mercy happens when that Samaritan takes that broken Jewish body, gives it to the innkeeper and says, look after him. That's mercy, feeling and action. And I, I'm trying to explain it tonight in a way that makes it real in your life. It is Mercy is the atmosphere, the posture, the motivation that determines the way you respond to a person. It shapes the way you move towards them. It shapes your response, and can I say tonight, mercy is not ignoring sin or excusing it. I was sold. I understood mercy like this: is that when somebody does something against you, you just ignore it, you just excuse it, you just kind of pretend it didn't happen. It's what Martin Lord Jones calls being easygoing. Let me tell you, mercy never cancels out justice and truth. Never. And the greatest proof of that is the cross itself. When the Father looked down upon the earth, He didn't go, Ach oh, shame, let's ignore the sin. Let's ignore what is right. Let's ignore what is true. Let's just be nice and zinkumbaya." Uh, he dealt with it by sending His Son. He satisfied justice and preached truth. But uphold mercy. Friends, mercy shapes the way we seek to satisfy justice and uphold the truth. Here's how it plays out. Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 that there will come a time, even within the church, where you will be sinned against. Oh, yes, Christians sin against each other. They hurt each other. They do things that are terrible to each other. How do you cope with it? And he says here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, what do you do? Do you pretend that it never happened? Do you ignore it? Do you put it under the carpet and say, well, I'm just going to pretend like I'm in clouds, uh, cuckoo land? He says, no, you go and you sort it out. You uphold what is right and what is true. You go and tell him his fault. But mercy shapes how you do it. And this is how it happens. is You do it between you and him alone, Jesus said. Because your motivation is, you want to see this person restored, recover. Mercy wants a person to save face. Make it easy for them to come back. To say sorry. And you have to, guys, tonight, you cannot ignore what is done against you. You cannot simply sweep it under the carpet. You have to deal with it. But how you deal with it must be merciful. It is a desire to win the person who's hurt you. What I mean by that is to restore the relationship, to allow them to recover to save face. Don't think it's merciful to go and tell all the people and ask their advice on how bad this person is and what you should do, and then you go talk to them. Don't think gossiping or slandering, trying to get public opinion about how people should feel or be in your camp, how you feel towards that person. That is not merciful. Mercy is upholding the truth, upholding what is just, but doing it in such a way that this person can recover. What happens if they don't respond the first time? Do you just let it go? You say, oh, well, you know what? Just ward off a duck's back. No, (laughs) Jesus said, if he or she does not listen, then you take one or two others along with you. Notice it is the smallest possible number of people getting involved in the process so that, wow, they can recover easily. But if then still doesn't happen, after taking one or two brothers, if he refuses or she refuses to listen to them in the Christian context, we take it to the church. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you are upholding what is right and what is just, my friend, don't make it public until it is the last resort. Don't bring it before everybody. And even if you do, if you're a Christian, you do it in this manner. You bring it before people who are concerned, people who are godly, people who understand the context and can be able to think spiritually. You be slow before you expose anybody. Because even at this point, mercy is saying, I cannot let go of what is right and what is true. But even at this point, you can come back and recover. Restoration. What happens then? Even, even if they don't listen, do you still let it go? Do you still just kind of brush it on the carpet and suck it up? No. If you know it is right and true, you still stand. And if he or she refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Friends, that is mercy in operation. Where the goal of your interaction with whoever has hurt you is not to crush them, it's not to be cruel to them, it's not to take them through the mill so that they know that they have to suffer as much as they've made you suffer. No, my friend, mercy is experiencing the need to stand for what is right and true. So that they may recover. Not so that they may be rejected. And how does this play out in everyday life? Well, there are two scenarios that I can think of. As Christians, the first is we obey the law. And there are incidences, let's say someone's stealing from your boss, or let's say someone's cheated on their exam. Don't let it go. But make sure mercy is shaping the way that you deal with what is right and what is true. Is you go, without telling anybody, to the person who is responsible to oversee that, and you report it and you say According to the rules, according to the regulation of the law and of the school, if you want to put in that point, or if it's child abuse, by law you have to report it. If you see a child abuse, you must report it. We obey the law, but we do it carefully. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the civic authority, as long as it doesn't hinder the way that we have to render things to God. Let me tell you, that's the easy version. The hard version is if you're the boss... Or if you're the best friend and the person who stole your girlfriend comes to you and says, I'm so sorry. And the power's in your hand to either make them suffer or to let them go. Can I appeal to you tonight? Don't crush them. You deal with the matter, but you do what Jesus says. You turn the other cheek. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that you're a sucker. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm a punching bag. Bring it on. No, no. What it means is this. is as you are dealing for what is right and what is true, you refuse to respond in that same spirit of being aggressive, of being violent, of being cruel, of being harsh, vindictive, vengeful, Wrathful, you refuse to strike back. That's it. That is what mercy is. All the time, when you are weighing up what to do in your heart and in your actions towards this person, it is a refusal to give into that spirit. And to ask yourself the question, what is the best means for this person to be restored? It might be jail. It might be some form of consequence, but I tell you what. Our responsibility, you want to know what mercy is, is what R.C. Kendall says. He is totally right. It is total forgiveness throughout the entire process of whatever you have to deal with in your life, whatever difficult conversation you have to have, whatever conflict is facing you, whatever stand you are taking for what is right and what is true, you are totally releasing that person in your heart. You refuse to be bitter. You refuse to be angry. You refuse to be vengeful. You refuse to strike back in your heart. You have totally forgiven. You let them off the hook in your heart. You've released them from vengeance in here. Who are we to be merciful tonight, church? Everyone. There's no category in verse 7. Jesus actually says, in case you didn't quite hear, even your enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, even those, listen to these words, who revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You even respond in mercy to them. And so tonight, I'm going to close. But for some of us, I am totally sympathetic of you going, is this possible? In my heart, I want to kill them. There's two ways you feel released in your heart towards somebody that's hurt you. The first is you meditate on how merciful God has been to you. Jesus said this. He said like this, I'm not asking you to give anything I haven't given you personally. Freely you have received. Freely give it. Stop for a moment and think how much you've needed mercy in your life. Because this is where the promise comes in. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the proof that you can be merciful is the proof you've received it. You can only give what you've been given. But can I say this? It's not just meditating on how merciful God has been to you. It's being motivated by the fact that it will not be long before you'll need the same mercy God is calling you to give that person. Do you believe that tonight? There was a guy called David in the Bible. And David had to learn to forgive King Saul. who was trying to kill him over and over again let me tell you god never forgets every time you are merciful you know how it plays out is when david was going to sin against god there was saul sleeping in the cave and there god had seemingly given saul into david's hands and all of david's friends were saying here's your chance david here's your chance Take him out. Kill him. God's delivered him into your, into your hands. He went and he cut the corner of Saul's robe and the Holy Spirit convicted David and said, "David, what you're doing is wrong. God was so merciful to David. He rescued David from committing a terrible sin. When there was a guy whose flocks David looked after, he was a wealthy guy called Nabal, which means fool. When David needed sustenance after protecting Nabal's flock from brigands and and thieves. Nabal said, I almost said, that's not a good word, get lost. You know, he wanted to kill Nabal. I just, this morning, that's what business is like. You pull your heart out. You look after someone else's assets. You do something that you feel has been honorable, has integrity, and the person turns around and says, stuff you. Runs over with the money. Doesn't come forward with the deal. You do the work, they don't pay. You know when he was going to, he was on his way to kill Nabal. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, runs, comes down on her knees and says, David, don't do this unrighteous act before God, please. She rescues David from committing sin. And I tell you, even... And it is a terrible thing that happened. Even when David sinned, he slept with another man's wife and then killed her husband. For a year, he was unreachable. When God said to him, David, you did this wrong, he didn't respond. He didn't repent. In actual fact, he thought he was pretty fine. You know, God was so merciful to David. He sends a guy called Nathan who says to David, you're out of line. And God spares David. Shows him mercy. Because God didn't forget. Blessed are the merciful. If that is the atmosphere of your life, you are in line for the blessing of God, my friend. When you are needing to be rescued, he'll do it. When, he's, when you're needing to be even confronted in your sin, he'll do it. But if you do not show mercy, you'll deny at that point in your life, you will block God. If you will not let that person go, God will not let you go. He will never excuse it. He will never ignore it. He will never pretend it's not there. He will want you to deal with it. So that the blessing of God can come to you. So only blessed are the merciful. Do you know why? Let me tell you, God will compensate what you feel, you lose when you do it. That loss of reputation, of letting that person off the hook, no one hears your story. No one is able to actually go, you were right, they were wrong. Let me tell you, God will so come to you. He'll come to you with his presence. He'll come to you with his spirit. He said, you're well done. You wait for me to put it right. You've stood for what is right. you stood for what is true. You've shown mercy. You've dealt with it. There's even times where you forgo your right. You don't even take that person on. You release it before the Lord. And if that's you tonight, you're in line for mercy. And so our response is very simple. We start with who we are and what God has done for us tonight. God's not asking you to do anything he hasn't done for you. And the evidence of that is, this is why we do it regularly. For us, it's once a month. If you want to know what mercy looks like and feels like, it is this. It's the blood of his son poured out for you, for me. It's his body broken. This is our comfort when we started to mourn because of what we were really like before God. is He gave us Christ. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the moment where, where Paul says very clearly in Scripture, you must make sure you're in the right spirit if you take this cup. Don't take this cup if you're not willing to forgive. Examine yourself. Paul says, if you are not willing to be right with God, don't take the cup yet. But if you are tonight saying, God, I'm broken again by the amount of mercy I see I need, and I need to show in the situation, you come and you drink, it's for the Christian. Then will you pray for? I pray for us, and then um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to serve communion. You just stay where you are. Don't take the cup. Don't take the cup if you're not ready. Don't take the cup unless you are willing to freely give what you are or what you have received. Lord, I pray tonight as we do this in remembrance of you, I pray that this act of mercy when you saw, you saw us in our misery, in our sin, Father, you didn't just say, Ach, shame. You felt compassion, and you moved towards it. It shaped your response to us. You could have pegged us to our own cross, Lord. You could have left us to die in our own sin. You could have upheld justice and truth in that way, but you decided to show mercy. You sent Jesus. You satisfied justice. You upheld what was true, but you did it in a way that we could be restored. And I pray tonight, and for whoever takes the cup, whoever eats the bread, Lord, there might just be a fresh flood of mercy from the Father to them. might bring release tonight from unforgiveness. might bring release tonight, Lord, from doubting. Even the love of the Father. For well, some of us here tonight... You feel that you can't love God because of what He's allowed in your life. My friend, every single act of pain, just like Jesus, is a call to show mercy. And if you can do that, you are blessed. You are blessed. The Lord is opening up a door for you for great blessing. So let's keep our eyes closed. I'm going to ask those you're going to serve to serve this, the elements tonight. I'm going to let you eat and drink in your own time. You do business with the Lord. You respond to Him. You only eat and drink if you're ready. I don't mind if you want to sit here for half an hour, an hour, two hours.